get your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 16. You know, you've been around for a little bit. You know, we've been working through the book of Mark. Uh, if this is your first week with us, we're glad that you're here. Uh, we have been working through the book of Mark over the past 16 weeks. There's 16 chapters in Mark, and this is the conclusion. This is kind of the last one of our uh, series called Masterclass. And what we've been doing is studying the life and the teachings, the miracles, the interactions of Jesus with individuals and, and, and as he moved through the Galilean countryside. And what we wanted to see is, is ask, and what we wanted to see is how he lived and how he acted with people and, and ask the Lord in, in the process to transform us by, as we studied his life and to say, that, that we, to say, God, we want to become fully mature disciples. And we know that fully mature disciples look more like Jesus. So we want to grow in that, and that's why we've studied the life of Jesus. Now, next week we'll start a new series, and it's a seven, eight-week series on called Fresh Fruit, uh, and it's on this, the fruits of the Spirit, and so or the fruit of the Spirit. And so we'll be working through that over the next several weeks, and, and super excited to to turn the page. And we've studied Jesus's life, and and the resurrection comes, and then what does it look like for us to live that out? What does it look like for the life of Jesus to be inside of us? And, and walk that out. And so I invite you to come and be a part of that next week. This morning, as we wrap up, we're going to explore kind of the same thing that we did last week. As we said, what are the lessons that we need to learn from the cross? Keep talking about master class, right? We're, what are the lessons from the cross? This week, we're going to ask the same question. What are the lessons for living from the empty tomb? Lessons for living from the empty tomb. You remember last week, we talked about the cross. The cross reminds us that death was required for victory. That the cross displayed the greatest love that the world has ever known. That the, the cross proclaims that Jesus came to be our Savior and to rescue sinners. That we were sinners, that he came to rescue. The cross, last, the, the last from last week, that the cross brings us to a defining moment in life that requires a response. We're going to see the same thing today. That it brings us, the, the empty tomb brings us to this place that requires us to ask the question, the hard question, do I believe? think before we jump in to, to the lessons, that, and there's four that I want to highlight for us from, from the empty tomb, I, I think that the best thing for us to do would to be to read uh, chapter 16 and just the, the completion of this book that we've been working through and just let God's words be the words that speak to us initially. So I'd ask you just to, to, to follow along in your Bibles. They're, they're not going to be on the screen today. Uh, I didn't didn't get that put up there, so hopefully you can you can use your device of some sort or maybe your the actual copy of God's word. But this is what God's word says, Mark chapter 16, verse 1. It said, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they went on their way to the tomb. And they asked each other, who will roll the stone away? From the entrance of the tomb. But they looked up and they saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And they entered the tomb and they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting to the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus of the Nazarene. He was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter. That he has gone ahead of you to Galilee. And there you will see him just as he has told you. And trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. 
near in your Bibles, most of your Bibles, it says that in the earliest manuscripts, maybe we all see that, earliest manuscripts don't have verses 19 or 9 through 20. We're going to talk about that in just a second, but I'm going to read those verses as well. And it says, verse 9, it says, when Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, that would have been Sunday, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of, the, out of whom he had driven seven demons. Verse 10, she went and told those who had been with him and with him and who, who were mourning and weeping. And when they heard that Jesus was alive, she said that she had seen him. They didn't believe it. And afterwards, he appeared to, in a different form to two of them as they were walking, walking on the road in the country. And he returned, these returned and reported to the rest, and they didn't believe them either. Verse 14, Jesus appeared to the eleven. Remember, there was eleven. Jesus was out with his team. And they were eating, and he rebuked them for their lack of faith and their stubborn refusal to believe for those who had seen him after he had risen. Verse 15. He said to them, go into the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, and whoever does not believe will be condemned. And this will be the signs that accompanies those who believe. Their name, in, in my name, they will drive out demons, they will speak in new tongues, they will pick up snakes in their hands, and they will drink deadly poisons, and they will not hurt, they will not, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people and get well. Verse 19, and after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken up into heaven, he was set at the right hand of God, and then the disciples went out and preached everywhere. The Lord worked with them and confirmed his word with the signs that accompanied it. That accompanied it. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for a time that we can gather in this place. We thank you for this church. As we get to gather as the church celebrate through song, to celebrate through giving, to celebrate through fellowship, to celebrate and, and, and to learn from you as we open up your word. We thank you for your word, Jesus, because it is the best word. All the words that we sing, all the words that I'll preach, God, they pale in comparison to your word. And we pray that you would teach us from your word. We put we put ourselves under you. We yield to your word because it is an authority over us. We're not in authority over it. And we pray by the power of your spirit that you would animate the words that I preach this morning and move in us and transform our lives that we would become holy men and holy women, looking more and more like you, displaying clearly who you are to us through the word of God. In Christ's strong and mighty name. So verse 9, 9 and 20, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just take a couple seconds because I think it's pretty, it's one of those things that if you just pass over it, I think we ask more questions than if we just go ahead and address the reality that it says that there. You know, so I, I, don't, I, I don't want you leaving here with questions and not hear anything else that we talk about because you're like, well, what about that 9 through 20 situation? That's a little weird. So 9 through 20, here, here's, what we, here's what we understand, just to give us a little bit of background. And the reality here, first off, is that scholars and smart, way smarter people than me, which is a lot of people, right, a lot of people have lots of different opinions on this. But I'm just going to give you a couple things that I think that we know about these verses 9 through 20. The first is that doctrinally and, theolo and theologically, nothing changes if you do the longer the longer version of Mark's ending in chapter 16 or the shorter version. And that's kind of the language that a lot of people use. There's the longer version and the shorter version. So if you go all the way through 20 or you stop at 8, there's nothing that changes theologically or doctrinally. That's what we know. 
We can just, we can read through that because we'll see, because most of the things that happen or all the things that were listed in those verses are reference material, right? Whether, whether Mark wrote it because Peter told him or he didn't and it was added later, I, I don't know. I don't know why it's, it wasn't in the earliest manuscripts, but what we know is that all of those things happened. All the things that are listed in verses 9 through 20, they, they, they preach the gospel. We see that those things happened in other gospel accounts or in the New Testament where, where we see in, in, in Acts chapter 28, Paul is in Malta and a snake jumps out of the fire and it bites him in the hand. He shakes it off and he's not, he's not poisoned by the snake and people want to worship him because they think he's a god. All of these things happened. People spoke in tongues. People were healed. And so we see it as reference material. So it's not that it's doctrinally incorrect. All things that happened. Secondly is that it's absent, but it's not completely absent. So it's absent from the, the oldest manuscripts that are complete manuscripts. There's two specific manuscripts from the four, from 400s that are, that are the, com, the most qualified or the most complete manuscripts that we have. And these verses are absent from those. But there's, there are manuscripts, older manuscripts than that, that, that we, church fathers, Justin Martyr, Ignatius, Irenaeus, Ir, Ir, mm, I'm going to not get his name right. Sorry, dude. The... the <laughs> Like, I don't want him to fuss at me when we get to heaven, right? These guys from like 150 and, and, and like way, I mean, 150 years after Jesus' death, they quote these passages as a part of Mark's gospel. And so we know that they were there at some point, but we know the full complete that we have doesn't have them. We, and, and to be on, honest, as you kind of, so they're, compl- they're absent, but they're not completely absent. And it does seem like kind of an odd place to stop if you go to chapter, verse 8, right? It just kind of ends. She was, she was, they were sad, and they went away, and they didn't tell anybody. That seems like a weird way to end a, a book, right? Mark's gone through all of these things. And, and there's a lot of things that you can see in these last verses that are a part of the way that Mark talks in other places. And there's some other things that you're like, that's not the way that Mark talks. Again, smarter people than me, blah, 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 blah. It does seem kind of odd that he would stop at verse 8. And so it seems like that may be what he, that, that he did include those things. And the last one is this, that a lot of people misinterpret these verses, especially verse 17 where it talks about, or 17 and, and the following, where it talks about handling snakes and those kind of things. Listen, I ain't handling snakes. That's crazy. Right? But we know that it happened. It happened in Acts. Where they, I, don't know, I don't know about the, 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 the drinking poison and not have, like, maybe, maybe that's recorded in some other places. But the, but the reality is that all of these things, they, they happened. And what the point of the passage is, what the point of what, what Mark or, or is trying to communicate with these passages is not that, hey, go test your faith or prove that you're a Christian by letting a snake bite you or handling snakes or drinking poison. That scripture tells us not to test the Lord, right? So we know those things, so we don't do that, but, we, but what it tells us, what it communicates is, is that God's power is working. For those who believe, those who trusted Christ and heard the message of the gospel proclaimed by the disciples as they went out, that then their lives were transformed, that the power of God was with them. And one of the foundational parts is that, that you don't have to fear, you can trust God. So there's kind of those four things, those, those handful of things. The doctrine is not, un, the doctrine theology is unchanged, but it's absent, but it's not completely absent. It feels like an odd place to start. It all seems like it's reference material. And it's, and there, there's some misinterpreted t- passages there as the things that I think that we know. Again, when we get to heaven, you can ask, you can figure it out. Maybe you already know, you can come tell me later why I was wrong. That's fine. We'll have that conversation, but we're going to move on. 
I didn't want you to leave here being like, I, I didn't even address that stuff, so I'm addressing it. So now we're going to move on to the four things that I think are, are lessons for living that the empty tomb teaches us. And the first one, if you have your worship guide, the first lesson for living is, is that the empty tomb reminds us that we can trust Jesus. The empty tomb reminds us that we can trust Jesus. And I think this is, and we're going to spend the most time right here. I think this is the most important for us to understand because really this is the foundation that everything else that we're going to talk about builds on. But trusting Jesus, that the empty tomb, the reality that if we grasp this, every other point of the lesson builds from this. We know what it means. All of us know what it means to be told by somebody that they're going to do something, right? And then it end up not being the reality. How many times have you, have you been told by or you, you've, you've bought something that it said it was going to do this and then you've gotten it home and it doesn't do that, right? But when you buy something and it does do the things that it says it does, you, you have some trust in the company that you bought it from. And when you know somebody that does what they say they do, you trust the people that they, you trust those people more than you trust other people, right? Because in all cultures, all around the world, when somebody does what they say they're going to do, you trust them. And the older I've gotten, the more cynical I get about people doing what they say they're going to do. And maybe that's because... I struggle with that on my own, but I don't want you to question me and what I say I'm going to do. I want you just to just say I'm, you know, trust that I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do without challenge, right? But I, I can't tell you how many times, and I hope that other people have experienced it, how many times have you pulled through a drive through at a fast food restaurant? Don't judge me. Pulled through a drive through at the fast food restaurant, and they say, hey, we'll have your order ready when you come around. And you get there, and they give you a bag, and they, and they have an order ready. But your order is not in the bag, right? How many times are you gonna? How many times do I have to like stop at the McDonald's window? I don't eat at McDonald's. I'm getting it for my kids, right? Because I don't care what they eat. <laughs> and be like, hold on, I got, I got to check because I don't know if you put the chicken nuggets. And like they're like, no, we put them in there. We're like, well, last time you didn't. So, isn't this gonna blow your mind? But that's not how Jesus is. In chapter 16, what it says, and listen to what it says, the, the, the angel's speaking to the ladies as they get to the tomb. In verse 6, it says, don't be alarmed, he said. The angel said to them, you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. He was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Listen, see the place where they laid him. Go and tell the disciples and Peter that he's gone ahead with you to Galilee, where you will see him, just as he told you before. See, this group of ladies, they came to the, the tomb that day these precious ladies who had followed Jesus, and they expected to finish the burial process of the, the, the teacher that they had followed, followed over the past three years. And normally we would be okay with the fact that they were startled when he wasn't there, but, but the reality is he had told them that he would not be there. If there's any lesson that we can learn from the empty tomb and the fact that Jesus was not there just as he said he would be, is that we can trust him. Foundationally, we can trust him. And, if, and the reality is if, if he can do that, if he can be crucified on one day and three days later tell us that he's going to raise, he's going to be raised from the dead, he's going to tell the disciples this. In Luke chapter, Luke chapter 24, verse 7, he says, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the hands of sinners. That happened. It continues. Be crucified. That happened. It continues. And be raised again on the third day. That happened. In fact, if this can happen, if Jesus can be handed over to sinners, crucified on a Roman cross, and be raised on the third day, we can trust him with whatever. 
There's nothing. What does scripture say is what is impossible with man is possible with God. And we can trust that truth because he was raised from the dead just as he said he would. And for all of us, when we just kind of think about that, well, if that's the case, right? Again, like we said, if we buy something from this company and it, it does what it says that it's, it's going to do, then all of a sudden I have a lot of confidence in this company. Maybe there's other things that they'll do that they say they're going to do. Well, what else can Jesus do that he says he's going to do? And what else does scripture tell us that we can trust him with? The, the, the reality, just to, come, just to give us a list, is that the empty tomb teaches us that we can trust him with forgiveness today. That we can trust him with forgiveness today. Psalm, Psalm 103, verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far he removed our transgressions from us. We can trust him today with forgiveness of our sins so many of us carry around this guilt and the weight on our shoulders of past sins, but the empty tomb says that Jesus took that weight, the weight of our sins on himself, and he died for it, and he rose again and gave us new life so we don't have to carry that around anymore. The empty tomb teaches us that we can trust in deliverance today. He's broken the power of sin the empty tomb teaches us that we can trust in provision today. One of my favorite verses in Scripture, 2 Peter verse, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, says this, that His divine power, His, meaning God's divine power, has given us everything that we need for life and for godliness through our knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence. He's given us everything, everything that we need. And we can trust Him that He's given us provision for today. Not only does the empty tomb give us provision and does it deliver and, and forgiveness of sins, but it gives us wisdom for today. James chapter 1, it says, James chapter 1 verse 5, it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And he will give it to you. I can trust him to give me wisdom for the things that I'm facing, to, to, to know what, what the right ways to, 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 the decisions to make, the right things to do, and, and the courage to follow him in faithfulness. The empty tomb gives me, allows me to trust him that I'll never be alone. His own words, Matthew chapter 28, he says, surely I'm with you always, even until the end of the age. The empty tomb allows me to trust that he'll protect me. Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians 3.3, 3, it says, but the Lord is faithful. He will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. says are yes in Christ Jesus. So in the darkness, I can trust him because it says that he is the light. In the chaos of my world, when everything seems to be falling apart, I can trust him because it says that he is the prince of peace. I can trust him. I can trust him. Foundationally, as we miss, any, as we miss everything else, what we need to hear this morning is that we can trust him. Take him at his word. He said that he was going to be crucified and raised again on the third day. And he did just as he said he would. And it gives us hope for the second reason or the second lesson from the empty tomb. That the empty tomb reveals or excuse me, relieves our fears and anxiety. 
The empty tomb relieves our fears and anxieties. If we can trust him, right, if we can trust him, then, then it gives us hope. It gives us this relief from the fear and anxiety that so many of us experience. And in so many ways in our Western culture today, especially Western culture, we live in the safest time the world has ever known. Now, I know that some of you listen to true crime podcasts and you don't think that we live in a safe world. And that, that I feel the same way, right? I look over, if I go outside at night, I'm like, this is how it all started. Right, this, that, this, the, that dude was gone. Is, are they gonna write a podcast about him? But the, the, the reality is that truly in the Western world, we live in one of the safest times in all of human history. Medically, physically we're safer. All the, I mean, like I used to leave my house on a bike in the morning and, and the only rules I had without a tracker on me was come back before the lights came on. My parents had no idea where I was, and I was doing some dumb things, but I was, I, my, I, my kids can't walk out the front door without me knowing what they're doing. We're safe, but the, real, the reality is that so many of us experience fear and anxiety because we put our hope in creation rather than the creator. Because our hope is in the creation, not in the creator, and our, our comfort, we find our, 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 our fear and anxiety dwells up because our hope and our comfort, our peace is built on an unsteady foundation. It's built on our finances. It's built on, it's built on safety that we can protect these things. It's built on politics or the approval of others. It's built on possessions or a position. It's built on all of these unsteady foundations that are going to fail us every time. And so because we build our lives on those things rather than on the foundation of Christ and trust him and take him at his word and feel this anxiety so the world so so in a world of fear and anxiety how do we find peace and again i say what is what is impossible with man is possible with god because the empty tomb tells us that we can trust him and our fears and our anxieties are defeated psalm chapter 27 verse 1 it says the lord is my light and my salvation whom shall i fear if he is who he says he is and has done and continues to do what he says that he will do, whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold. He's my protection. It's not the alarm. It's not my ring and door system. It's not my finances. It's not the position that I have. It's not my possessions. It's not the applause of people. He is my stronghold in my life. It'll never be moved. He's unshakable. Whom shall I be afraid of? That our anxieties and our fears well up inside of us because we trust in creation rather than the creator who is the stronghold and the light and who, in, in whom it says that we have nothing to be afraid of. The empty tomb has that foundation and we have this great trust and we have this the vanquishing, the, the, the victory over fear and anxiety because we know that he's our stronghold and he's put put shine light in the darkness so we don't have to fear the darkness any longer and lesson three is that the empty tomb opens the door to a living hope i think what we see is that the empty tomb opens the door to a living hope first peter chapter one verse three says this that praise be to god and the father of our lord jesus christ in his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You know, there's lots of theories about the resurrection and lots of people have come up with lots of ways to explain it away. 
We don't have time to go through all of them, but I, I have a list of them, and I, I want to. There's a couple of them that I think are funny. There's the swoon theory, meaning that he just kind of passed out; he didn't die, right? That, that's one of them. The spirit theory is that he was that he raised from the dead. He wasn't actually raised from the dead; it was his spirit that came back. One of my favorites, the hallucination theory. Uh, catch this: that Jesus preconditioned his disciples to hallucinate. And so after he was de- after he was dead by hypnosis, he pre- he had preconditioned them to hallucinate and see him risen from the dead after he was dead. That's pretty that's pretty far fetched, right? Pretty hard. The vision theory that they had these visions and they interpreted them that. There's this myth theory, the stolen body theory that comes from Matthew 28. There's the wrong tomb theory, like those silly ladies. You just went to the wrong tomb. If you'd had Google, you wouldn't have missed it. Just drop a pin. The, the for profit, the lie for profit theory, right? That the crucifixion was a disappointment to the disciples, but they figured out a way to make a dollar on it. And so they just went after it, made a dollar on it. Mistaken identity, they thought it was somebody else. Muslim, Muslim they, the theory from the Muslim church is, is that, or Muslim religion is that, that Jesus was never actually crucified. So they, they reject the, the resurrection period because Jesus was, that, that God would have not crucified his son. So that there, there was a, um, they speculate that there was a, somebody took his place and they think Judas maybe or Pilate or um, Simon who carried the cross. So they don't, but they don't believe in the resurrection. So there's no reason to say that he resurrected um, because they think that somebody else took his spot. And this is my favorite. This is my absolute favorite. It's called the twin theory. This, have, this is not a joke. 1995, this philosopher, Robert Greg Havand, argued this point in a debate with another Christian apologist. And this was his brilliant idea. You ready? That Jesus had an identical brother that was separated from him at birth. The first time this brother saw him was on the cross. Dude had an idea. He was like, all right, this is how it's going to work. He stole the body, hid the body away, and was there at the tomb to meet Mary Magdalene and then walked the earth afterwards. If that's all you got to do is to come up with some ridiculous idea to be a philosopher, call me a philosopher. I've got lots of ridiculous ideas. We try to explain it away. There's so many try, uh, theologians and scholars and uh, or scholars have tried to explain it away because they don't want to believe that it could actually have happened. But over and over again, godly people have proven the, 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 the reality of the, the resurrection the truthfulness of the resurrection. There's lots of resources. One specific, I'm just giving you one. Lee Strobel's books are all of the books that he kind of has. The Case for Christ. There's a Case for Christ. There's a Case for just about anything. And even the movie that goes along with that talks about these swoon theories and hallucination theories and all of those things. I would recommend them for you. There's a couple others. We'll talk about those later if you want to have you come talk to me about them. But the reality, for the sake of time, the reality is that we can trust because we can trust Jesus, the empty tomb gives believers a living hope for right now. It gives us a living hope for right now, for this moment. Hebrews 10, verse 23 says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who promised is faithful. We have hope right now, but we also have a hope for the future. So much, again, so much of our, of our anxiety comes from the unknown, but what we do know is that the tomb was empty, and therefore our hope is built on a risen Savior. And our future is secure in his hands. And not only is it a hope for now and for for the future, but also forever. There's a hope forever. If you keep going in this passage in in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1, 3 through 5, it says this, that praise praise, praise be to God. I'm going to get it. Praise be to God, the Lord Jesus Christ. 
His great mercy has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Verse 4, and into an inheritance that cannot perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. The empty tomb gives us hope for now, for this moment. And all of the chaos of your life right now gives us hope for, for the future that is unknown, but is held in, the, in what we know, in the, in, in the, in the hands of the, of the God who is not in the tomb any longer. And it gives us hope forever because it opens the door for an eternity with him. An eternity to be with him, to be in the, with, with him where, where everything is set right. And in all the longings of our heart that we know this place is not the way that it should be. The, in that place, in that place forever with him, this living hope that we have is that we will be in that place where everything is right. And for the believer, for those of us who have put our faith in, in Christ, the phrase is, could not be more truer that the best is yet to come. That this is not all there is. So it reminds us that we can trust him. It relieves our fear and anxiety. The empty tomb opens the door to a living hope. And lastly, it teaches us. Lastly, it teaches us that he has a purpose and a plan for our lives. All of these individuals God used past this moment. All of them went on to be used by God to take the gospel to the places where they had not heard it, to establish churches. And reading through this passage, one of the things that that in the preparation that really kind of gra grabbed my attention, it was something that one of the authors that I was reading kind of pointed out, is that over and over, Mark seems to want us to, to see how these individuals who were close to Jesus were afraid and confused and they didn't believe or they refused to believe. And if you read through the Gospel of Mark again, you just, you'll pick up on that, that they were confused and they didn't understand or they didn't believe or they didn't understand yet again and again. In, in this passage, three times it talks about their refusal to believe or they're not believing. And yet, in all of that, we're in, again, he's just making sure that we get it. But overwhelmingly, it's obvious the stark contrast to their fear and unbelief is this tender mercy and the grace of Jesus that come after that. Even though they weren't ready to believe in the truth of who he was. He came. And what it reminds me of is when we think about him, he has a purpose and a plan for our lives. Is that each and every one of us are those that have received that tender mercy from God. That in our unbelief, right, because scripture does not have a, a beautiful way to describe us outside of our relationship with Christ. It calls us sinners and rebels and those who are enemies of God, but in our unbelief, in our running away, in our rebellion, Christ comes after He walks into the room with the disciples and shows them his hands and his feet and his wounds. Second thing in this purpose and plan, Christian, you have to ask that, you have to answer that question. Do you Eventually, all of us have to answer the question, do I believe? Do I believe?
believe the true truths of God's word. He is who he said he is. And he's done what he said he would do. And because of it, I can put my faith in him. And my life be transformed by him. And for the disciples, it was a moment that they had to come and make that decision. And for each of us, we are the recipients of that grace. Whether we accept it or not, that's in our moment. We have to come right in this moment to decide whether or not we believe it. As the band comes up, we wanted to kind of give some space this morning for us to respond. And on the one hand, it is the, the, we want you to, to just fill out this card and, and let us know, but it's, it's an all skate. Anybody remember going to the roller skating ring? It was like, this is an all skate. You, everybody does it. This is an all skate. We're asking you to fill this out in the front, but really what that's all about is giving us a little bit of space to respond. And as the band plays, we're going to ask you not to, not to stand up and sing in the first part of this song. Kendall will tell you. She's going to invite you to stand up at, at, a, at the moment, at, at a moment during this song. But we just want you to kind of sit and rest. You're not going to miss out on anything. I want you to sit and, and have some time to fill out the card. But mostly, it's not your name and address that really is what matters. It's the fact that you spend some time asking Jesus, searching your heart as to where you are today. And there's four responses. One, that, that, that you're accepting Jesus, that, that, that first one, that you're accepting Jesus and his gift of salvation for the first time. If that's you, and today you, you want to trust Christ for salvation, you've never made that step to say, I believe in him. Are you ready to take that next step and just say, yes, I'm accepting Jesus as my Lord and Savior. There's nothing magical about the moment. There's nothing magical about me praying a prayer over you, you raising your hands or coming to the front. Really, it's you and God saying, I want to trust you. If that's the step that you want to take, if the, if, the step, if the step is you've already trusted Christ, but you've never been baptized, there's an importance that's put throughout Scripture on baptism, on that public display of, a, of what's already happened on the inside, and you've never taken that step, I want to encourage you, today's the day to take that step. For us to help you get ready to take that step and be baptized. So if you want to be baptized, check that second box. The B, the C box is that you're already committed. You're walking with Christ. You love Jesus. You found a place to serve. You, you are in a community group. You are there. You're walking with Christ. If that's you, I want you to check that box in the next couple of minutes as, you're, as we're responding. I need you to be in prayer because I believe the Lord wants to work in you in this moment draw individuals to himself. So I want you to join me in praying for that. And lastly, maybe you're in that category of you just don't know. You don't know about Jesus' plan and you'd like to talk to somebody about it. And if that's you, there's nothing wrong with saying I don't know. What would be wrong is saying you don't care or not taking the step to find out. I'd encourage you. We're, we're going to take a couple minutes. They're going to play. I want to invite you not to stand for the next couple of minutes, but to be in a, in, a, in a place of response in this moment. If you've trusted Christ, I'm asking you right now that this response moment, maybe it's a renewal for you, but it's secondly, it's asking God to move by the Spirit to draw men and women to himself. 
Jesus, we thank you for this morning and this time that you've allowed to be here, to be in this room, to open up your word, to be able to sing songs. But God, even in this moment, songs that are the most important things